0: For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and
1: most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins.
2: Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read.
0: And Malcolm Mitchell.
3: When I scored a touchdown, they probably put my name in the newspaper. People probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat?
1: Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards Ceremony at amplify.com slash star awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash star awards celebration, all one word. How do we help students become confident readers? And what do all our students need so they can enjoy reading success, especially during this unprecedented time? Welcome to Season 3 of Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. This season, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Scarborough's Reading Rope, a model that helps us understand the complexities of learning to read and helps us focus on evidence-based practices. Each episode will cover elements of the model, what it means, and how it should impact classroom instruction. We've lined up a dream team of science of reading experts we think you'll really love. The Science of Reading movement continues to grow and at a time that is more important than ever. It's vital we focus on research-based practices to deliver classroom instruction that allows students to learn. If they aren't learning, we need to examine our practices. We may not know what changes are coming next, but we do know we need to stay connected and learning from each other will get us through it. The more we learn and listen, the more we'll be prepared to lead. Our students are counting on us. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast season three. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. We're taking a bit of a break from our series, Deconstructing Scarborough's Reading Rope, to bring you a very special episode. Today, we're bringing you audio of the panel discussion I recently facilitated as part of CDL's Plain Talk Conference. Our focus was making the shift to more evidence-based reading practices, and we talked with several people who have previously been guests on our podcast. Join me as we talk with Natalie Wexler, Carolyn Strom, and Ernie Ortiz. There's lots of great science of reading nuggets for you to consider, and if you've missed their episodes, be sure to go back and check them out we are really excited to bring a panel of experts to you and talk about making shift the shift to the science of reading in your district we're going to talk at a few different levels of what that might mean at the classroom level um, and, and other levels. Uh, but before we get started, we have three experts with us, and I would love for each of them to do a quick introduction before we start talking about the science of reading and, and what that means in terms of making the shift to evidence-based practices. So Natalie, let's start with you.
2: Oh, I'm Natalie Wexler. I'm an education writer and I'm uh, the author of a book called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It, and the co-author with Judith Hockman of a book uh, called The Writing Revolution. Great. Thank you so much. And Carolyn. Hi, I'm Carolyn Strom, um,
0: I'm a clinical professor at NYU where I teach in the teacher preparation program. Um, and before this, I was a teacher and reading specialist for over 10 years working with kids who had dyslexia um, and coaching teachers um, in the
1: pre-K and K-1 space. Awesome, and Ernie.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Ernie Ortiz. I am a K-5 principal in Mormon, Pennsylvania where we have made the shift of the last several years to align our literacy practices and resources with the science of reading. Prior to me being a principal, I was a to K-5 teacher in the Allentown School District for 13 years and an assistant for three years before I made the switch through the principalship here at McDonald Elementary.
1: Great. Thanks so much for those introductions, all of you. It's great to have just a a diverse group on our panel today to talk through what it means to make this science of reading shift. Um, And again, making changes at all kinds of different levels. Also, for those of you that are watching right now, thank you for being flexible with our presentation format here. So everybody's in their own space, um, doing their own things to make it make sense. And so, yeah, thanks for being flexible. As a reminder, after you all watch this, we will be available to answer questions. Um, And so as we go throughout this recording today, make sure those of you that are listening and watching are writing down the questions you may have for the panelists so that we can get those answered. So let's just start, I think, with, again, we're framing this up, that we're doing some change at different levels, change in the classroom, what's it look like for administrators, what it looks like for teacher preparation. But I'd really love to start at the teacher level, the classroom level. And so, Natalie, we're going to start again with you in terms of making some shift to science of reading. And um, based on what you know and what you've written, um, how, how would you frame that up? For our, for our watchers, viewers here.
2: Frame up the what the science of reading means or? Yeah, maybe what the science of
1: reading means to you and, and what it looks like in the classroom and how we can start talking about making that shift.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the science of reading is one of those terms that you hear a lot and it probably has somewhat different meanings to different people. A lot of yep. the time, I think it re- it's used to refer to the findings of the National Reading Panel and they, they issue a report in 2000 and identified Five pillars of early literacy. Um, And so most of that was focused on foundational skills, so phonemic awareness, phonics, um, fluency, uh, which has been called the bridge between foundational skills and comprehension, and then vocabulary and comprehension. And um, I think one mistake would be to see those as completely separate things (laughs) that have no relation to each other. You just do them one at a time. But I'd say the other thing from my perspective, the National Reading Panel was mostly focused on those foundational skills and they came out very strongly in favor of systematic instruction in phonics. Um, And that is great. And and we still have a ways to go in that area, but they they sort of laid out the case very clearly. Um, I've been focusing more on comprehension. And I think that's where it gets a little tricky because the National Reading Panel really they they looked at these studies, mostly randomized controlled trials, and they really were only looking at research that had been done on reading comprehension strategies. And they endorsed a number of those based on the evidence. And I think that that has been taken to mean that's all you need to do to foster reading comprehension and boost children's reading comprehension. What they didn't include was a whole body of evidence showing that the really key factor in reading comprehension is knowledge how much you know about the topic you're reading about. And so they, they didn't get to, uh, they didn't lay out the case for building knowledge, which is really crucial. And so I think possibly an unintended result of that National Reading Panel Report has been that the science of reading is sometimes interpreted to mean when it comes to comprehension, all we have to do is these reading comprehension strategies like visualizing or or whatever. And in fact, without a knowledge base, those strategies will not really
1: help you that much. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point That uh, to, to frame up. When we talk about the simple view of reading, we or when we talk about the science of reading, we're talking about the simple view of reading, right? The idea that kids need two things to be, uh, be strong and confident comprehenders uh, or readers, which is language comprehension and this idea of word recognition. And so your book really focused a lot then on the language comprehension side or the building of the knowledge and the vocabulary
2: right um and i you know i don't want to make the argument that that's the only factor in reading comprehension there there are others um but you know there there have been a number of studies showing that you know somebody who's a maybe a general considered to be a generally good reader you give them a passage to read on a topic that they're very unfamiliar with and they become not such a good reader so yeah. um, i so i think it is it it's very important and we've kind of been shooting ourselves in the foot by marginalizing or even eliminating subjects like social studies and science and the arts from the curriculum especially the elementary curriculum to spend more time on reading comprehension skills and strategies when in fact and there's some evidence now that to support this it would be much better if you want to boost comprehension to immerse kids in that content in history geography science the arts and and that way boost their vocabulary and i would say the other And and, because vocabulary is really just the tip of the iceberg of knowledge, right? You know, you don't learn those words in total isolation. And the other thing I would say is really key to reading comprehension, and maybe we can talk about a little bit more later is uh, being familiar with the peculiar syntax and vocabulary of written language as opposed to spoken language, because Mm -hmm. written language is almost always more complex, it has different words and and you know the passive voice comes in and all these things you just don't hear in conversation and so if kids are going to understand that syntax that vocabulary in their independent reading they have to get used to it through listening to written text read aloud to them
1: mm, great point and carolyn i see you nodding your head and and agreement and resonating with these things that she's saying. Yeah, I'm just enjoying it. And I
0: wish now you snap when you're in a (laughs) professional development, I'm like, oh, does that really work on a podcast video? It works now. <laughs> yeah, um, there was so much there that Natalie was saying that, that was resonating. Um, and you know, my work is really in the earlier space and we always talk about how it starts with spoken language. Mm-hmm. The whole entire reading system in our brain starts with spoken language. Spoken language supports language comprehension and supports this automatic word recognition. So I was just seeing a lot of connections um,
1: in what she was saying. Yeah. And when it comes to, so Carolyn, I'm going to turn to you for just a minute and, yep. and have you give us a little bit of uh, explanation when you hear to Natalie's mm-hmm. point, the science of reading, what does yep. it you and as a critical researcher in this field.
0: Yes, yes. So the way that I sort of work with it with my teacher prep students, teacher candidates, is we see, you know, the science of reading is great because it frames reading as a construct that has multiple components, right? Reading is not one thing. It has, of course, these two components, language recognition um, and word, sorry, language comprehension and automatic word recognition. But even within those, there are these subcomponents. Um, So because my work really focuses on the pre-K through second, third grade and and struggling readers, we really focus on the journey that automatic word recognition takes in the brain Um, and really talking about the cortical processes that the brain undergoes between the ages of three and eight right? If you think about a three or four year old who doesn't typically read any words, but does have a spoken language, right? A couple of years later, they're reading three and four letter words and they've increased their vocabulary by thousands of words. And by the time they're seven or eight, they're reading multisyllabic words and they're paying attention to morphemes. And all of that has happened within three or four years. Mm-hmm. Um, so with the teachers I work with, we really work to help them understand that, yes, reading is a construct. It has these separate components. And within the word recognition component, There are so many components. Yes, it's phonological awareness, right? Yes, we need to get to orthographic mapping, but there's a progression of skills that kids go along um, that teachers really need to understand, Um, you know, and sort of the way I also think about it with as this reading as this construct is that automatic word recognition is a skill. It is a skill we need to develop, it needs to become automatic, and then it no longer takes up conscious energy in our brains, Mm. unlike language comprehension, which you're working on from birth through your adult life, right? But automatic word recognition is a skill. It's like riding a bike. It's like playing the piano. We want to get it to an automatic state. And I think those are the sort of the, to me, that's how I begin to organize um, the science of reading.
1: Mm, That's really helpful. Let's shift to Ernie really quickly to talk about what that, you know, sort of the things that Natalie and Caroline were talking about when you're sitting in the administrator's seat. What does that what does that make you think of or what resonates for you?
3: Well, the biggest thing that I see myself as the, the building leader here, along with our leadership team, is we provide the resources to our teachers so that they could have the biggest impact that they can potentially have on our students. So it isn't me as the unilateral leader, it's me with our assistant, with the grade level and department leaders working cohesively and making it a point to pinpoint what resources we'll need and not physical, just not simply physical, tangible resources, but also the knowledge. So I, I, I hear what Natalie's saying in terms of understanding the importance of what background knowledge plays in 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 terms of students' abilities uh, to comprehend what they read. And it resonates with me what Carolyn just said in terms of, and I wrote this down, progression of skills that teachers need to understand. Specifically, when you're looking at the early literacy skills and how the continuum, when when you have a concern, or if a parent brings up a concern in regards to their child, and we can speak to specific points that will say, Looking here in terms of phonemic awareness proficiency, if it's a second grade student, understanding their ability to manipulate phonemes at, at the beginning, medial, and mm-hmm. being able to convey to the parent that looking at the universal screeners, looking at an informal decoding survey, we, with, with this information, have confidence in saying that your child is progressing uh, in, a, in a manner that we feel comfortable with, with a little bit more intervention that perhaps we we will see at the end of the school year that there's going to be this level of growth that we are excited about, or maybe it's the other way, we have some level of concern, right? But understanding that and teachers being able to convey that, well, first understand it for their own instructional pieces and then being able to convey that to the parents because historically that's been the reading specialist job or, or, or someone with that type of, uh, background in terms of a master's degree and whatnot. Our goal here at McDonald, and really should be all the goals of all building leaders, is that every classroom teacher, every teacher who works with the student has that capability of conveying that message, understanding the data, so that they can inform their instruction, and inform the parents, and make decisions truly in the best interest of the progression of each and every student that they have.
1: Mm-hmm. That is really wise words. And, and I know the folks that are here at this conference and listening to this right now are really committed, right? Like they're here for a reason committed to understanding how to make that change. What does that mean for me? How does that look in my classroom? Um, and so I think we couldn't overstate the importance of teachers having the knowledge and administrators having that knowledge to be able to support the teachers. Um, Natalie. Natalie. I'm wondering if you can help us a little bit understand when we're talking, you were talking a little bit about comprehension strategies and how maybe teachers need to be shifting in the classroom to not focus on that, but really focus on knowledge development. Can you provide some examples of what that might look like in a classroom or how a teacher might
2: accomplish that goal? Yeah, one of the things I did for the book was to follow, I was at Oh, in a lot of classrooms, but I followed two, ended up being three elementary classrooms through a school year. Um, The idea was one using the standard approach to comprehension, focusing on skills and strategies. By the way, a lot of the skills and strategies that get focused on were not endorsed by the National Reading Panel. Just (laughs) footnote there, but like main idea, no, (laughs) not endorsed. Um, But the and the other classroom using one of the newer. Uh, elementary literacy curricula that actually do focus on content on building knowledge uh, starting in kindergarten if not before rather than putting those skills and strategies in the foreground and so it's not like you don't think at all about having kids understand how to find the main idea it's a question of what's in the foreground and so for example in the second grade classroom i was following um, where content was being put in the foreground and building knowledge um, for example, so the teacher would read a story essentially aloud every day and there would be discussion and she would have a, a, a poster set that the, she and the students would work on filling in information collaboratively during and after the read aloud. And the one that I often show in presentations happens to be from a unit on Greek myths and it's about the myth of Daedalus and Icarus. And um, if you look at that poster, you it's full of content it's full of information about the myth of Daedalus and Icarus but there's also some stuff that might look like skills so there's a question predict you know what is Daedalus's plan and then there's some boxes that say cause and effect but and I I saw this in action in that classroom that the teacher was not trying to teach the skill of making predictions or the skill of determining cause and effect because those are not free-floating skills unlike you know, phonics and phonemic awareness skills. Those are not skills that can really be taught directly in isolation from content. So what she was doing was asking kids to to do those, to just instead of saying, okay, well, we're going to learn how to make a prediction. She was asking them a question that required them to make a prediction or an inference mm-hmm. or to figure out the relationship between a cause and effect. Um, and that's what works. And those kids let me tell you, they were making inferences right and left, but no one ever really commented on it. No one ever said, oh, you just made an inference. Isn't that great? But they were learning how to do it. And I think, you know, we do want get, to get kids into the habit. I would I would call it habits rather than skills and strategies. It's a great idea for kids to be thinking, well, what's, you know, what's the main idea here? What's really going on? Or what is what does this mean? But you may not be able to answer those questions if you don't have enough background knowledge to understand the passage. So you want to get kids in the habit of doing that. Um, But you have to recognize that it's it's not a skill like riding a bike where they can just learn it, practice it, keep getting better at it and then apply it to any text that's put in front of them. Mm. Let me ask a quick follow up question on that.
1: it, what grade level classroom did you say they were doing this Greek? This was second grade. Second grade classroom. Doesn't that seem like um, inappropriate content for that particular grade level?
2: Well, I suppose a lot of people would think so, but you would not believe what these kids were fascinated by and, and quite capable of absorbing and learning. I mean,
3: you know, there would also
2: be vocabulary words of the day. And so... I went from the skills focused classroom where the vocabulary word of the day was curious because they were reading Curious George mm. to the other side of town to this and and these were all kids from low income families they happened to be different parts of town but they were all children of color. Low-income. I went to the other classroom and, and the topic was Buddhism and the, one of the vocabulary words of the day was enlightenment. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, Kids and these kids, many of whom came from non-English speaking families, they were learning these vocabulary words, using them in their own conversation, mm-hmm. and under and then clearly understanding what they meant. And they were also making the most thoughtful, insightful comments during class discussion and making all sorts of connections. This was the third year they were in using this curriculum, but they were making connect. So they started in kindergarten. They were making connections like oh yeah i remember that from first grade i mean they were learning one of the things they were learning about believe it or not was the war of 1812 which a lot of american adults you know don't know much about and one of them i remember said you know when an army surrenders it flies a white flag and the teacher said hmm that's yes how did you know that and she said well I remember that from first grade, from the American Revolution, and all the other Mm -hmm. kids went, yeah, first grade, yeah, you know, so they were making all sorts of wonderful connections, and they were so much more engaged, you know, it was really hard for that teacher in the skills focused, comprehension skills focused classroom to get a conversation going, a class discussion going, because the kids just weren't that interested in talking about sequence of events, or, or whatever the topic was. Right. Oh, that makes
1: sense. And so the way you describe that helps us understand of putting content in the forefront or the foreground and then using sort of these other strategies to sort of, you know, have a conversation uh, about what they're uh, interested in. Motivation is a big thing for kids, especially as we're getting that excited about reading. So
3: now I um, like to add to what Natalie just talked about. Yeah. from the building perspective, leadership and, and, and guiding teachers through the curriculum. You know, historically, they're given a program and then they follow it almost to the T. You know, you, you might hear things like follow this with fidelity. And there are, you know, there's some merit to that, but sometimes it can be the, the, at, to a detriment in terms of content and knowledge building because the focus is so much on skill. Yeah. And then it, it becomes it's not as organic. As it is when you're focusing on the content and the knowledge. And so when you when you have those conversations with your teachers, and I would say the Sandy leader, it, it really, you know, it motivates them and it also informs them so that they, because not they're not going to have every resource. There is going to be times where they have to look and pull a resource off their shelf or virtually, the virtual shelf, so to speak, where they can help boost the content, the background knowledge, while working on a skill development I saw this morning. I had the the privilege of being in a second grade classroom, Natalie, as you just referenced, and the inferencing that was going on organically based off of the discussion that was happening from this read aloud was what we want to see so that it impacts all the boys and girls in person, virtually, across all demographics, and any other subgroup that you might want to mention. And that to me, as as the building leader, is what I want to see as what I would what we're trying to foster here, because when you have informed teachers who understand this and then embrace it, it it resonates within the classroom. And it's what will help the boys and girls flourish even more as they move forward.
2: And if I could just add, I don't want to go on too long on this, but I would just like to follow up on what Ernie said with you know, the equity piece of this, giving all students access to the same content is hugely important. And teacher after teacher has told me, and I've seen this, that often it's the kids who would be in, would have been in the low reading group uh, confined to really simple text, the kids with IEPs, the English language learner kids, those are often the ones who make the most insightful contributions to class discussion when they have access to rich content they get a chance to acquire information and think about it so it's not just okay we read about zebras yesterday we'll read about clouds today And, and you know if you already know about zebras you already know about clouds then you might be able to say something about it but if you don't you might not if you spend two weeks on zebras or clouds then everybody gets a chance to really think about it. And, you know, it does wonders for the classroom as a community, for equity, and for forgiving those kids who feel that they're in the quote unquote dumb group, giving them a sense of what they're actually capable of and a chance to demonstrate what they're capable of. Such a great point. Such a great point. You know, and I'm just
0: going to, just to, just, there's a theme I'm seeing that I think really, really Relates to, to the science of reading, which is everyone's sort of talking about this move away from isolated strategies. And I think that's a big uh, issue in the field of teacher prep and in teaching in general. There was a long period of time where, obviously, with the National Reading Panel and comprehension strategies, but in general, where it was like, oh, teachers just need more strategies. Give them more strategies for English language learners, more strategies for struggling readers, strategies, strategies. And we have to get beneath that, right? And so what you guys are talking about is really building the knowledge knowledge and how ex- teachers build their expertise in helping kids build knowledge. Um, and I just I love that we're sort of getting at this issue that teaching is not just a collection of strategies to mm. try.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think I remember it was when I was in my teacher prep program, it was building your toolbox, like you mm-hmm. need to have all of these things in your toolbox that you can pull out, yes. but they were all disconnected from yep. the, you know, the larger content. Yeah. You know,
2: yeah I'll just add, and I'm sure this is maybe not true everywhere, but I have been sitting in virtually on some classes, ed school classes. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly what I'm seeing. It's still all about Strategies, pre-reading strategies, during reading strategies, post-reading strategies. That's it.
3: Hmm. pre reading strategies huge? Because that's something that a lot of te- a lot of teachers rely on, and to pre-teach and to make that lesson or whatever uh, book read and and small group instruction instruction go smoother. And that's a mindset shift in terms of like, for example, getting away from picture walks. And uh-huh. relying on having the boys and girls actually read the words that are on, on the page, then looking at pictures. And I, you know, just real quick, I, I'll share an example of when we had a pre meeting for an, an observation, as we do. And the teacher was going to do a picture walk. And I, and I challenged her to say, hey, we want the boys and girls to really focus on the words. So what she did was virtually with her Google Slides, remove the pictures. But have the boys and girls focus on the words, predict what might be in the pictures, and then show the picture. Work, the pictures after the words, which was great. And uh, uh, just that conversation with the pre-observation and then that. that little tweak that she made made the lesson even more impactful.
1: That's yes. great. You know, that's a good segue to Carolyn. Um, I want to turn to you to talk a little bit about how do we make that shift in the classroom then when we're talking about evidence-based practices Mm -hmm. and you're focusing on word recognition Mm -hmm. how do we like how do teachers make that shift Mm -hmm. because that was a great example Ernie. What does it look like in the classroom on the other side of the simple view? Right. So on the other side, what it looks like is
0: attention to sort of what Ernie was just saying. It looks like attention to letters, right? And Mm -hmm. how they represent sounds. When teachers and parents understand that the main task behind word recognition is turning symbols into sounds right? That is what stands in the way. Then that is what the focus is. And of course, you are focusing on building knowledge at other periods, right? But when you're focusing on word recognition, you're really focusing on the letters. And since letters stand for sounds, it starts with perceiving sounds. And so it starts with phonemic awareness, which I know has a lot of different interpretations, right? But it's very basic uh, sort of that, what it's really asking us to do is asking kids to hear individual sounds and words and Mm -hmm. become sound sensitive right? And so in pre-K and K, that doesn't look like drills. Oftentimes when we think about systematic explicit instruction around word recognition, we think it has to be boring and look like skills, but phonemic awareness is fun. It involves word play. Kids are up, they're down. If they he- if they hear the sound, Shh, they're hopping up, right? If they hear, Shh, they're going down. And what are they doing? They're tuning their brains to hear the individual sounds and words, because if they can't hear them, then they're not going to be able to match them to symbols. And then the reading circuit is not going to sort of work the way it's designed to work. Mm -hmm. So in making the shift to explicit systematic structured phonics instruction with the goal of word recognition, one of the things we've really tried to do is help teachers understand and model how it does not have to be boring. It's Mm. been a real crime that word recognition and phonics instruction has this reputation as drill and kill, mindless, boring, decontextualized. Not at all. We're playing with words. We're moving words around. We're turning best into beast. Right, We're changing short E to long E. So all of that can be really fun. So when you go into a pre-K and K classroom, I would say that's what you're seeing. You're seeing wordplay. You're seeing playing with letters and sounds. As you get into into kindergarten and first, second grade, you're seeing active decoding and dictation. And I'm going to say decodable texts right? So decodable texts has this, again, also have this uh, poor reputation, but they are how kids practice word recognition, right? Mm-hmm. And anytime you're, you are learning a skill, what do you need? Practice, right? Decodable texts were never written. They're not designed for knowledge building necessarily. You might, okay, but that's not what they're designed for. They're designed for practice, So what we want to see is decodable text aligned with what I mentioned before. This typical progression of skills that build over time, right? We don't go from reading a CVC word, which is consonant, vowel, consonant, three-letter word, to reading a multisyllabic word that has multiple meanings, right? There's a progression, and so we want to see if you walk through a pre-K, K, one, two, three, you would see how the word recognition skills build on each other from the classroom, and ideally. Ideally, you would see the same uh, curriculum being used pre-K through two, at least with the same alphabet chart, right? And the same way that kids are learning sound symbols. You don't want to introduce it one way in pre-K. And then the next year in K, Mm. they have a whole different character that represents the sound. And then in first grade, they have a whole different, you don't want to see that, right? You want to be as consistent um, as possible. And I still uh, observe in preschools and kindergartens that don't have an alphabet up. Mm it's it's wild and like, we don't want to pressure them so early when we know that age is three to five or when these critical skills of phonemic awareness and uh letter knowledge are, are the most sensitive and that, that we can have the most bang for our buck if we build it then
1: yeah good so i point. hope i
0: answered your question you it's a little all over but
1: yeah no you did and 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 you did it with energy and excitement because i think i love what you said about people think that phonics or teaching phonics and using decodable text is really drill and kill uh, when it doesn't have to be, it can I mean, be exciting and entertaining. Yeah.
0: And have you worked with a kindergartner who read a decodable book for the first time? Yeah. You cannot stop their joy. Yeah. Okay. They carry that around. They make a shoebox at home for their decodable <laughs> books because they feel good about it. Yeah. They yeah. feel one good. They know like when to they're memorizing Carolyn, a
3: book. One thing I'd like to add to Carolyn's energetic response 100%. You know, <laughs> you hear drill and kill, and there's nothing wrong with drilling. And no one's ever, you know, died from being taught the skills that they need. And I, I, I take that from uh, Anita Archer in one of her talks, that, you know, <laughs> she, she mentioned that it's always resonated with me. We the importance of the drilling. Right. And the skill development. But also, as Carolyn said, the decodables so that they can practice what they're learning, because historically for me, in my in my years as an educator, and I believe it's still continuing on today. Students might learn the phonics, but then be given a resource that doesn't help them uh, practice the skills that they're exactly. learning because it'll be more of a predictable text than a decodable text. Right. And then in terms of making wordplay fun, because that's what we call it, our phonemic awareness block coupled with the phonics piece, that's our wordplay. And Love when we that. talk about things that are scientific in terms of um, the vocal cords, vocal cords being activated, we, we talk about it as, is your voice on or is your voice off? And that Great. in kindergarten, first grade, and the boys and girls that are having that drill sound to start off every phonics lesson, which is the consistency K to two, they they see it as fun. The yes. manipulation of phonemes, me, beginning, medial, and as yes. and we understand the vast importance of phonemic uh, proficiency and what that plays in grades three, four, five, and and understanding how in second grade. If they are showing a level of mastery with the manipulation, adding, deleting, substituting yeah. of phonemes, then we feel comfortable that they're progressing in terms of phonemic proficiency in a way that we like to see. Mm-hmm. And then now let's look at the phonics piece. Are they able to uh, apply the phonetic principle and understand the the basics of what the, the the alphabetic principle has to offer? And then teach them the 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 the, the types of um, exceptions that there might be. And so all of that makes it wordplay fun, and it's on the delivery as well. And once they're truly reading, like Carolyn said, they they take off and it's really something that motivates us as educators to keep pushing forward with. Mm
1: You know, this is really awesome because all of a sudden I'm getting really excited about, I need to go to the classroom and start like teaching kids to be really excited about this. It reminds me that we're talking about like two things, right? We're talking about the development of language comprehension, right? And and knowledge and vocabulary. We're talking about like this word recognition side, but the reality is, is these two things, even though we're talking about them separately, actually work together really well. So one of the things we know is the more vocabulary vocabulary you have, the better you are at word recognition. And so even though we're talking about them separately, they actually play into each other. So we should get excited and motivated about delivering content to kids. And we should get excited about helping kids be excited about reading decodable text.
0: Yes. And giving them opportunity to talk about Uh, to talk about books at uh, a word level. So I was listening to some first graders talk about the difference between a ranch and a wrench. That one kid did not know what a ranch was. He thought it was a wrench because he's having trouble hearing the vowel. But it was only because the teacher was making space during a phonics drill about CH, which one would think is just super boring, but they were reading ranch and wrench and the teacher let them have that space to talk about how the
1: change of one sound Changes meaning. Oh, that's amazing. And that goes back to then your background knowledge and what you've been exposed to and those vocabulary, that's, that's great. Yes, and the, one of the best parts about it um,
0: was that, you know, someone said, oh, I know what a ranch is. It's what I get at, Wednesday, at Wendy's to, to put on my salad. <laughs> <laughs> my <laughs> mom puts it on her salad. Fries. <laughs> you know, and so it was just, it ended up being this really great conversation about the word ranch versus the word wrench. It took about 30 seconds, but it reminded me of what Natalie was saying. We The kids were making connections and they just were talking talking about one word and comparing it yeah. to another word.
2: Yeah. I just would like to interject one thing, which I, I think it, it, one of the, the the problems is, yes, these things are interrelated, but I think we've kind of been relying on kids to build their own knowledge through yeah. their decoding skills, through yes. their own reading skills. And, not only does that, that doesn't work when they're still just learning to decode, it actually doesn't work for quite a while. It's not going to be the most efficient way to build their knowledge through yeah. their own reading. And, you know, because there's this thick curve, I think it's called, it shows that listening comprehension exceeds reading comprehension on average through age 13. Yeah. And of course, sometimes it's going to be beyond that. And if the topic is difficult and you can't decode the words easily because they're unfamiliar, you know, listening may still be a more efficient way of getting you familiar enough with the concepts and vocabulary so that then when you look at them on your own, when you're reading individually in text, you'll have a better chance of understanding mm-hmm. and recognizing those words. Really good point. And
1: especially for our struggling readers, right? We can't count, we can't count on them accessing text to be able to build that background knowledge and vocabulary because it's gonna make them go further and further behind. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. Um, Natalie, I'd like to extend a little bit on that because you know we've all been talking, and there's sort of an underlying assumption that we all have Ernie as a building administrator who's encouraging us and providing resources for us to like actually accomplish this in the classroom. What about the teacher out there who is the lone teacher in his or her own classroom in school or in the district? that really is like, I get the evidence for this, and I want to make this change in my own classroom. As it relates, Nellie, to the work that you've done with knowledge building, what advice would you have for that teacher?
2: Well, you know, I get emails like that from teachers um, regularly, and um, my heart goes out to them because an individual teacher has a limited ability to build knowledge Knowledge building is a gradual cumulative process that extends across years, across grade levels, and an individual teacher doesn't have control over what happened the year before or what is going to happen next year. However, there are things that individual teachers can do within the confines of perhaps a less than supportive environment. And and one is just to, you know, if you've got, say, a basal reader where the questions are all about skills and put skills in the foreground, ask different questions. And then, then you may need to supplement the content because a lot of basal readers have very thin content, very little nonfiction. Um, you know, I remember one that was like, this was this was paired with Curious George and this basal reader. There was like two paragraphs on schools now and long ago. And it was just, you know, there was nothing there. So, you know, the, the, Unfortunately, this is going to place more of a burden on teachers to come up with stuff, but it's not just going on Teachers Pay Teachers and looking for what can I find about sequence of events and informational text or inferencing or whatever. It's looking for good, rich content, other books you can bring in and read aloud that will flesh out whatever is in the basal, or if you have more, you're not using a basal and you have more flexibility, create a text set of your own where you spend maybe a couple of weeks on a topic, reading a set of books on that topic. And you also have books available that the kids can maybe read on their own on the same general topic. So that once they're familiar with the the concepts of the vocabulary, let's say it's sea mammals, right? So you have a basket and of books about sea mammals that are not all at level L, you know, they're, they're at a, a range of levels. And then you may be surprised once you've spent two weeks talking about and reading about sea mammals, what level those kids could read at when they're reading about sea mammals. And I I definitely heard anecdotes like this that, you know, kids can read a a much higher level than you would expect if you've built their knowledge of that topic. So, you know, those are all things that individual teachers can do. Um, And then I would also say, try to find or, or, you know, either create or find like-minded colleagues, band together, Mm enlist parents if you can. And I think parents are the sleeping giant here. If they really understood what goes on in classrooms and how little it relates to what science has found out about how kids learn, how they learn to understand what they read, I think they would really be mobilized. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think there's strength in numbers if you can accumulate them. And it's starting. Mm -hmm. There is
0: a big parent advocacy group, right,
2: starting way more than there was, let's say, three or four years ago. I think it's so far largely focused on phonics and the decoding side of reading, but I hope it will spread to the comprehension. Yeah, yeah. And Carolyn, what about uh, on
1: the word recognition side, again, the same question, if your teacher in your school and you're all by yourself and you're like, no, I believe in this. What what advice do you give to them?
0: Well, so we've actually had a little bit of that challenge being in New York City where um, balanced literacy or teachers college reading and writing project sort of dominates. So they take our you know classes on the science of reading and then they have a placement in a classroom where the teacher says, no, we don't do phonics. No, you can't do an explicit vocabulary lesson, right? And so we've really uh, run up against this and Mm -hmm. tried a couple things. One, kind of going back to what I said before, showing them how it's fun and it's not scary. Doing a lesson on CH can be extremely fun and not scary. So I've usually come in and say, you know what, can they just try it I promise you, you nothing's going to happen to your kids. If anything, they're going to learn something. Will you just please let my student teacher try this, right? Mm-hmm. So that's one way. Now, how would that work if you're the teacher, right? I think it has to do sort of with what Natalie was saying. It's like building this network, right? Which now social media, there are a lot of people out there promoting how to do foundational skills and how to do all these things. So if you're not allowed, quote unquote, to teach this thing, these things, I think you can get support um, online. So that's, um, that's one thing is, really making it fun and showing them um, that it's not scary Mm -hmm. and beginning to build in your within your school, you know, a, a small group of people that understand this right and start to build capacity rather than compliance right so we're always like teachers feel like they're always being told what to do oh here's someone telling me to use this strategy rather than explaining to them the reason we're doing this is because this is what's going on in the brain so we're building your capacity about what's going on in the brain and why these methods align not just telling you what to do right Mm -hmm. um so that would be the other piece and then the other thing is something i'm going to tell you that a veteran teacher told me when i first started out and she said Listen, Carolyn, when you close the door, you do what's right for your kids. So if your principal is telling you what not to use decodable texts, why? First, what? The, why is the reasoning when there's all this science behind the importance of practice? But then, you know, you can do decodable text for 15 minutes a day. Close your door. I, You know, we have to be agents of change and not just, you know, we have to do what's right.
2: If, if i could just follow on that because i i often use that you know teachers traditionally my mother was a teacher you just close the door and do what mm-hmm. makes sense to you and i think it works the other way too so if you have someone at the top saying, you know, okay, this is, we're, we're going to use decodable texts, but you don't explain, you don't make it understandable why that's important, then the yes. teacher can close the door and not use decodable right. texts right. or not build <laughs> knowledge <laughs> or whatever. So it exactly. goes both ways.
0: Which is why building that capacity, not just telling them to use decodable text, not just compliance, but building their capacity for, oh, I know why I'm making this instructional decision. It is an amazing use of this yeah. 15 minutes, right?
1: And and Ernie, I know you've done that within your building. You've built that capacity. But I want to shift the question a little bit for you to say, you're a building administrator and you sit within a district. And what do you say to a building administrator who says, I am on board with this. I want my teachers to make the shift. I am all in to give them the resources that they need, the professional development that they need. But the district is not at that place. What advice do you have for that building administrator?
3: My advice is to rely on the research. And one of the things that I did before bringing it to my teachers was I made sure my knowledge base was very solid so that if teachers had questions, if parents had questions, if my wife had questions, who's also a teacher, I was able to respond in a manner that people felt like he knows what he's talking about. And so with that being said, that's how it started for me. Then I was able to bring it to my supervisor and Mm -hmm. have a meeting and discuss it. Something that started in the building has now gone district wide at the elementary level. And so something that started really, and and for any building leader who wants to start, I started looking at K-12. We were having our data analysis of three, four, five. We had a good year. How could we be better? Well, if we're going to address, address three, four, five, in my opinion, and in my opinion, it had to start in K 1 2. So, how could we improve K 1 2? Because historically, we have been doing this things, the same things over and over. And in some years, we'd have ebb and flows of, of data spikes here and there, but nothing that was going to really push us forward. So, with that being said, my aha moment, my career aha moment with coming across the research and Emily Hanford's work helped me get to the point where I was able to then lead a discussion at at the district level, which helped foster the growth and expansion across all three elementary buildings in our district. 2,500 students are being impacted now by the science of reading in terms of teacher knowledge happening K to five, leaders looking at data in a different capacity and making decisions that are, that are going to help support students that are in the MTSS process, but also help and support the students that are, that are considered simply tier one because we're meeting their individual needs based off of the data. And that's something that's even immensely crucial right now given in most districts across America, how we're either virtual or hybrid and we're not full in right now four or five days a week. How are we going to address what we all know is some level of, of learning loss because of the impact of COVID. So I feel very blessed that I have a district that is is willing to listen and it starts with a conversation. So any building leader who, and I would even say this to teachers, it starts with a conversation with your building leader. And then as Carolyn said, and I piggyback, piggyback off of what uh, Natalie said, the, the door open and close concept, I would say open your door and invite your mm. building leader in to see what's happening in your classroom, because that right there is I I believe more impactful than simply closing your door and saying, great like, point. I'm gonna do what I have to do. Yeah. I mean, that's a last resort, in great my point. opinion. In my yeah, opinion, that's point. a last resort. Let them see what's happening. And then when you have the MTSS meetings and students are brought up that might have some level of concern, the data that you provide mm-hmm. and the specific types of, of of information that you're going to say that and, and with confidence speak to will resonate with your building leader and you're they're going to be like, wow, that's that's interesting. And and that will raise their eyebrow. It's I've seen it happen. And that's my encouragement in terms of teachers with their building principals and then building leaders with their district.
1: That's amazing. And you know it makes me think of you know, we can, like, we can do this. It can start with one person that really builds their knowledge base, which all the people that are at this conference are are here to do. Build your knowledge base and then be vulnerable and confident that you're doing the right thing, to Carolyn's point, the right thing for the students in your classroom or the students in your building. Um, and you can make that shift and, and and be influential to others. So thank you for those words. That's great.
0: Love open the doors. Yeah. Open
1: the doors and bring people in. Exactly. Um, As we sort of come full circle, I think, and wrap up a little bit here, I'd like to ask each one of you uh, to sort of give your one best piece of advice to either a teacher or an administrator, whether it's a building level or at the district level, as it relates to the science of reading and making the shift. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a big question, but let's start with Natalie. What are you thinking?
2: Well, I you know, I, I'd like to just get in a plug for one thing we haven't talked about, which I yeah. think is hugely, potentially powerful, and that is writing instruction. Great. Um that's a key part of literacy. And yes. I think we have really, we've underestimated how difficult it is for kids to learn to write. We kind of expected them to pick it up. We've asked them to write at length when they don't yet know how to write a sentence. Yeah. And partly, and we've also separated it from the whole knowledge building process. We've treated it as, okay, we have a writing block. You're gonna write about whether we should have chocolate milk in the cafeteria. You're gonna write about your trip to the amusement park last weekend. If you're building kids' knowledge, and this is dependent on a content-rich curriculum, if you're teaching them about the myth of Daedalus and Icarus or whatever, that's what they should be writing about. And when they do not yet know how to construct a sentence, we should not be asking them to write multiple paragraphs because that is a tremendous cognitive load that's really, really hard. In other words, they will not learn to write and they will not have enough cognitive capacity to think about What they're trying to write about so I want to just put in a plug for integrating writing instruction into the literacy block or whatever you into into the knowledge building process. It also is an amazingly powerful way potentially if it's not overwhelming of acquainting kids, and students with that all-important complex syntax and vocabulary of written language. If you learn how to construct a sentence with a subordinate clause or with a word like moreover or passive voice or whatever, then you are in a much better position to understand that when you encounter it in text. Great. Thanks for that. Super important. Um, Carolyn, what about
1: you? Either final advice or a final plug?
0: Yeah. So um, I guess since I'm at university involved in teacher prep um, and think a lot about research to practice, um, something that I think a lot about is that research does not change practice by itself. It is not like you can just share research. First of all, it's not written for teachers. Typically you can't just share research and people say, Oh, Oh my gosh, now I get it. I'm going to totally change the way I've been doing things for the last 15 years. Right. Research does not change practice by itself. And we need, and have been developing on the side of teacher prep have been developing ways to show how research can connect to practice. People are talking about it as translational neuroscience or translational research, whatever you want to call it. I think that anyone involved in teacher preparation or, professional development or trying to sort of build knowledge around teachers has to realize that we need to do more than just present research findings. We need to do it in ways that are accessible and deeply connected to teachers' local realities and their everyday needs, right? They don't want to hear just about a research study when they're trying to figure out how they can improve reading instruction tomorrow at 9.15, right? So that's sort of my my little takeaway about the role of research and how to sort of move forward with it.
1: Great. Thank you. And how about you, Ernie? Final plugs, final thoughts?
3: My final thoughts would be advice for for any building leaders who are listening that might say, hmm, I I hear what's what's being discussed here. And and you reflect on your building and your situation, and you might have some doubts or concerns like, I don't believe any of this is going on. Maybe some of it's going on and not other stuff. It's never too late to start. Never. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to not know everything. I, have I, I, Year three of my journey and I am still learning more things that I could use to help support my teachers. Teachers have the biggest impact on students. After that, the research is very clear that building level leaders have the next biggest impact on, organiza- on organizational culture and academic uh, uh, success and and we are the instructional leaders of our buildings. Okay. So particularly elementary principals, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you, we need to make sure we have some level of a knowledge base to help support and work alongside of our teachers because we are in their everyday. We are in their everyday lives. I like to consider our our building here is like my classroom and mm-hmm. my teachers are are the people I get to work with so that we can impact our littles every single day. Mm -hmm. And there are so many resources out there. For example, I belong to a a principal group Mm -hmm. with the phonics program that we use so that I can be a better leader for my teachers. Mm -hmm. And ultimately it's up to us as building leaders to provide our own level of professional development so that we can be better leaders for the teachers, the students and our school. And so my advice to you is to. Start dipping your big toe into the science of reading. I would encourage you to start looking at K12 and see what it is you have in place, what it is that you quite possibly are missing. Like for us, the first thing that I wanted to address was the gap in phonemic awareness uh, mm-hmm. instruction, which was zero at mm-hmm. tier one. And that was where we started, and it's taken off from there. And I'm very proud in the, le- in the level of success that we've had in the two plus years since then, since that initial conversation with my faculty and staff. And it starts with that conversation. Once you feel comfortable and ready to do that and know that you're not alone, you have a vast network of people, whether it's the Twitterverse, whether it's numerous Facebook groups that, that, that are out there, people who will help support you to start and continue your journey.
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you for that. And what better place to start and continue your journey than in a conference like this. So thank you for joining. I think we're going to be taking some questions from our audience members now. Um, But what a great conversation. Thank you, everyone. Thank
3: you. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Susan. Thanks for listening and keep your feedback coming. Do you want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing on your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group. Science of Reading the Community. Visit Amplify.com to check out all our free literacy events and upcoming Science of Reading Symposium. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch.